and amen. Yeah, to Christ be the glory as we come into today. It has been an absolutely wonderful summer. I just want you to know that from Kevin and myself, we're both here in the room today, and uh, we get a chance to do this each summer, and I just want you to know it's an absolute blessing to be with you guys and, and to be able to stand up this summer, and we got to walk through two series, our Transform series, and then today we'll be wrapping up our God, Sin, Christ, and You series, and it's been just an absolute privilege to be here as uh, dad, as I refer to him, our senior pastor, Jamie Rasmussen, comes back next week and will start us off through some of our vision work that we do kind of through the fall. So we're excited to be here with you together today. We're gonna talk about this Christ picture. Kevin's done a brilliant job for the last two weeks of talking about God and then nobody's favorite topic last week, but so important and so rich for us to understand sin, and I for sure drew the long straw on this one, as Kevin said last week, I get to sit here and brag about Jesus. Uh, the challenge with bragging about Jesus is this. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives about Jesus, particularly in our world today. If you were to go out in culture, if you were to go out and just talk to different people about what they think about Jesus, you're gonna get a lot of different perspectives. I'd like to start with an analogy about perspective. It's from a guy named Alistair McIntyre. He's a philosopher and he had this to say about uh, perspective. He uses the idea of a watch, a wristwatch. And he says, it's impossible to determine if a watch is a good watch or a bad watch unless you know or have the right perspective on what it is for. Is it for hammering nails or for telling you the time of day? Without the proper perspective on its purpose of what the watch is for, any evaluation of it is impossible. Uh, when we look at this person, he's a historical figure, right? You look at the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth, you will find that the history books will tell you a man named Jesus was born in Nazareth. He walked on earth. He did what secular world would say were a lot of very good deeds. And then from there, he died a criminal's death on a cross. That's historically provable based on what we know. But your perspective of what that was, well, that, that changes everything. In some cases, if you use the watch analogy, something excellent for telling you the time of day could be deemed completely useless with the wrong perspective. Where I'd like to go today is I'd like to take a secular view of this Jesus of Nazareth, talk about it a little bit, I'd also like to take a biblical perspective or view on this Jesus of Nazareth and see where we land to answer a question that Jesus will ask in the, one of the passages we look at today, to answer the question, who do you say that he is? Before we do that, let me pray for us. Yeah, so we come to you today, Jesus, to talk about you and you alone, to talk about this perspective uh, that all of humanity has the ability to press into, and we can take several perspectives on you today. We'll talk about both of them. Lord, my prayer is this. Uh, I know on this week more than most uh, that unless you show up, nothing will happen in this message. And so I just beg of you now, will you come? Will you do what only you can do? Will you change hearts? Will you change perspectives? Will you show the world the love that you have that you bought them at a high price. And pray this in your name, amen. We're gonna look at three passages today. We're gonna to look at Matthew 16, we're gonna look at John 14, and then we're gonna close in the book of Romans as we walk through 
this idea and kind of answering some of the questions or looking at this idea of perspective. So the first verse that we're gonna look at today is Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 17. It says, when Jesus came to the, uh, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is pretty fantastic. Uh, Jesus comes in, and, and here's what the disciples were used to. They would go to all of these different places. They would walk in, and it's pretty typical that Jesus would sort of lead the way to a location in the city. Typically, it was a synagogue or a marketplace because that's where the world exchanged its media, right? They didn't have any news outlets. What they had was they had places where people were gathered and they would come in. It was in the marketplace where the philosophers met. It was in the marketplace where friends gathered during the day to exchange goods and ideas, so it was very typical for Jesus to go and to teach in the synagogues or the marketplaces where ideas were being exchanged. So as Jesus walks into a new region in Philippi, he stops and he does something that the disciples aren't used to. He stops and he flips around and he just asks them a question. Uh, that question's right here. Who do people say the Son of Man is? What's he saying? Hey, what's the world saying about me? What is the world having to say? The answer is really great. It kind of comes in three parts. They say John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, or another prophet. Now, each one of these is a miss, and it's a miss in the same direction. John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist uh, had died at this point, and so what had happened was Herod, based on the history books, they believed that Herod had started kind of a rumor or had a belief that was being spread. Uh, Herod had had uh, John the Baptist killed, and so what he's sitting here doing is he's looking at the person of Jesus, and he's going, huh, let me get this straight. This guy's raising people from the dead and baptizing. This sounds a lot like that John the Baptist guy. I think John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's one of the historical kind of theories on why this would have been said. Uh, the other thing that John the Baptist was in the book of Malachi, it talks about this. It talks about John the Baptist actually fulfilled a prophecy. He was the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. It says that one would come who would prepare the way. He was the one calling in the desert. Only problem was Jesus wasn't that one. What about Elijah? Elijah was a warrior prophet. He was the one who, if you go through the Old Testament account, he warred with the prophets of Baal. Baal was a pagan god. The only problem on this one is that Jesus wasn't the warrior prophet. What about one of the other prophets, like a Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or the others? You see, he wasn't that either. And what all of these misses have in common is they all fall short of who Jesus really was. Because Jesus was better than every one of the misses. Here's the deal. The world, back in the first century when he was walking the earth, always missed short of the goodness of who Jesus was, and the world is still doing it today. With the misses here, he wasn't John the Baptist, the one calling in the wilderness, the one preparing the way for the Messiah. He was the Messiah. 
He wasn't Elijah, the warrior prophet who would just defeat a pagan god. He was the one, the warrior who would come and defeat sin and death. He wasn't just some prophet pointing to God. He was God come to earth in the beautiful incarnation of not just Jesus of Nazareth, but based on what the Bible says and what I believe for my life and is the belief of this church and so many others, he was the God-man. God come to earth to do what only God could do. You see, the world always misses. Secular perspective will always take Jesus and make him a little less than he is to explain him away. And when you miss with Jesus on the light side, you're always going to miss something that humanity is in desperate need of. And I intend to show that to you today. If we move through this passage, something really interesting happens next. Jesus actually doesn't even respond to the world's view of him. I think that's so fascinating. He asks the question, but then doesn't really answer it on his own. Says, hey, who do, who do people say that I am? They tell him, and he doesn't even go to it. What's he go to next? He goes to what's most important, and I think this is critical for where we're going today. But what about you? I think this is the most important question any human being will ever answer in their eternity. He asked, who do you say I am? What do you say about Jesus It's a question I'm gonna pose at the end of the message today, but it is the most important question, and Jesus is going straight to the source. These are the guys that know him the best, and he's taking time to go, who do you say that I am? The response is fantastic, no big surprise. Simon Peter, for those of you who don't have a great biblical background, it's okay, that's part of why we're here today, to continue to teach and instruct and show you the Bible is filled with incredible resource for your life. But Simon Peter's kinda known for shooting his mouth off, and he gets it wrong a lot, but I'd submit to you today, he nails this one. Simon Peter says this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now. What's about to take place is another area where the world tries to downplay or diminish Jesus, and I'd like to put this thing in absolute vivid color for you. The world so many times will say, Jesus never claimed to be God, all right? Christians make way too much out of that. He was a good teacher, he was a nice guy, he did a lot of really kind things, he was a humanitarian. That's all he was, he never claimed to be God. Garbage. Right here is a perfect example of where you gotta go one of two ways with Jesus. This is Jesus' moment. Simon has just declared everything that the Old Testament has been talking about from the beginning to the end. You are the Messiah, the promised one. You are the Savior. You are the Son of the living God. This is Jesus' moment to look at Simon and go, that is way too much, bro. Back off, calm down. You've gone way too far, I don't check those boxes. Simon's saying, you have fulfilled all the prophecies, you will fulfill the rest, you're the one. And Jesus should rebuke him if it's not true, but what does Jesus say? He says this, blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus flat out says, you have called me the Messiah, you have called me God come to earth to save humanity, and you're right. And in fact, I'd go even further, Simon, a Jew, he's looking at him and he is tying back into his understanding of God, God the Father. 
He's saying, my Father in heaven. He's saying, God the Father revealed this to you. Not only are you right, but that revelation came from God himself. Here's what you gotta do with Jesus, right here and right now. He is either a liar and a lunatic because nobody would claim to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God, or he's exactly who I think he said he is in this passage, he's Lord. You see, in this passage right here, you gotta pick a side, you gotta go one way or the other. Jesus was a liar or a lunatic, or he was Lord. C.S. Lewis has said that for years, but you gotta pick a lane with him because you can't just call him a nice guy. You can't just call him a humanitarian. You can't just call him a prophet or a teacher. He never left those options available. He's a liar or a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Let's see what Jesus said about himself. This is so great. We're gonna go to John 14. Let me set the scene for you a little bit. It's the Last Supper, so here's what that means. Uh, it means that Jesus has gathered this kind of same group of guys. At this point, one has been dismissed. That's Judas. He's going to betray Jesus, and now the rest are left. And Jesus is talking to his closest friends, really for the last time, and for the last little bit leading up to this moment, he's been foreshadowing his death, but he's finally said, I have to go away and you can't follow me. And one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Thomas, he's the one who would later look over at Jesus and say, um, how do we know it's you? Doubting Thomas, he would reach over, he would place his hands in the nailed, scarred hand, uh, places of Jesus' body and he would recognize him as the Christ. This is who I would be, I'd be that doubting Thomas. But Thomas looks at him and he says this, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's another great little place where the world just has a heyday. Uh, the scene that we're talking about some 2,000 years ago, the actual context of what Thomas is asking is, you're starting to tell us that you have to go away. You're leaving us. At this point, these guys have been following Jesus for years now, and they're sitting there going, we don't know how we're gonna do this without you. We need to know the way. He's talking about a physical way. Jesus is speaking to something so much bigger. Uh, Jesus, tell us the way. He goes, I'm the way. I I'm everything you're ever gonna need. Implicit in this is that they're, they're wondering, well, how are we gonna know what's true? Me, I am true is what Jesus is saying. What about life? Life is so confusing. Don't you have so much more to do? I'm all the life you'll ever need. The challenge that we end up having is that the world, again, steps in without Christ and says, let us take a look at that kind of way, truth, and life idea. You see, the world has its own way. What Jesus is telling Thomas and the disciples in this moment is, stick close to me, I am the way. Truly fulfilling, contented life only happens over here. I'm the way. What's the world do? You see, Jesus takes way, truth, and life and laser focus, focuses all of them in on him. The world takes way, truth, and life and sends them as far away from Jesus as possible. What does the world say about finding your way? This is what the world is telling all of us. You can find your own way as long as you're happy. And as long as you're happy, the end will always justify the means. 
You can do whatever you want to go ahead and find happiness. Here's the problem. It isn't working. The world is telling us just go out and be happy. It's not tricky. Don't come here to Jesus. Go find your own way. And the way of the world is this. Fill your life with stuff, with people, with things. Earthly things. So we become these cultural gatherers. We're out in this society going, oh, I need more of this and more of this. And we're filling our arms with stuff. We're filling our arms with earthly relationships, which again, I intend to show you today, these are all a part of life, but they're not the point of life. So we have arms full of earthly things sitting there gathering over and over and over again the stuff that just simply isn't fulfilling the deep parts of our heart. Why? Because like the book of Ecclesiastes says, because each human being was made with eternity placed inside of us. We have this infinite, eternal hope that I believe God has made man in what was called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And just one of the reasons, there are so many, so many more than I would ever even intend to explain because God's ways are higher than my ways and his mind is higher than my mind. But one of the great things about being made in the image of God is that we can receive the love of God. And what that Ecclesiastes verse is telling us is you were made with a place for that love inside you. And the world is saying, not laser focus in on the one who gives that love. Focus out on finding your own way. And as long as you can be happy, you'll be all right. Just gather enough stuff, enough people, get enough things, and you'll be okay. So off we go, scavengers in a world looking for the things to fill are infinitely desiring hearts, but the finite just isn't getting it done. What about truth? We got the way, go on your own. What about truth? You wanna have a conversation about truth in the world today? Here's a fun ex uh, experiment, I don't recommend you do it, but take your Bible out, sit down in a food court at a mall, as if those still exist, and, and, and set your Bible down, put your hand on it, and talk to somebody who's never had a background in church and say, I, I just wanna, submit something to you today. I believe that within this book is an absolute truth, a, a truth that was given from God to man. It was authored by God through human hands. And I believe that this absolute truth is good for the flourishing of communities and of the human heart. About the time their brain starts to ooze out of their ears because they've never heard something so absurd, you'll realize we're in very different spots. You see, the reality is that the view of truth in our culture today is so simple, you create your own. There's no such thing as an absolute truth. And so when you walk into the world, and again, you go, I, th I think I've, I've found some truth in the goodness of Jesus Christ and the beauty of his eternal word. <laughs> Not a chance, man. Remember, it doesn't get narrower. Uh, the way is broad. Truth is constantly conforming, except the human heart isn't being filled with something it likes. Truth's always changing. Whatever season of life you're in, new things need to be true. It's exhausting. Lastly, what about life? You see, the life that the world is producing, once it goes the way and once you start to live on your own truth, the life that's producing in the world is exhausting because it's based on this gathering concept. The, the reality is, if the life that the world was producing was working, then celebrities wouldn't be dying in droves with fame and fortune to spare. 
Do you wanna know why exorbitantly wealthy people are dying in droves? Because if you take the typical person kind of wherever, but just doesn't have everything, they've still got a little bit of hope that this gathering concept is going to produce what they're hoping for. Their heart still goes, well, yeah, but I'm only here. You see, once I get that next promotion, once I get a little more money, once I get a little bit better wife or husband or kids or schools or whatever the chemical or thing is that you need, you go, if I could just get that. You see, as long as people can stay low enough to where there's still hope in future material things, they kind of have this longing desire that drives them. You wanna know why billionaires are dying? Because they've got it all. They're standing there and they're going, I can't buy any more houses, any more cars, any more jets, any more vacations. I can't control any more people. I got it. I reached the finish line. People are cheering me on at every fundraiser and thing that's happening. And it didn't work. I'm still longing in this eternal place inside me and none of my stuff. Their arms are so full of things and they don't have Jesus. They've got everything and they've got nothing. So what are they gonna do? You see, the reality is the world says perform. The world says do. The world says go out and show us that you have value. The world's gonna say this over and over again. We'll accept you exactly as you are. That's fine. Disagree with them and see if that's still true. Because the world is not as gracious a place as it declares it to be. I've spent a lot of time in it, and I can tell you, it chewed me up and spit me out just as fast as everybody else because it's not as soft a landing as it will tell you it is. In so many cases, we don't like the lives that we have because the way, the truth, and the life simply isn't there. And the reason we are so hurting is because we're simply exhausted with the do concept. We've crafted our identities at times around some of these different things. And I wanna clarify something today. You may be watching us from this city, somewhere around this state, this nation, or as we've gotten emails all throughout the summer and we get often around the world. I had a group email me from Kenya this last week. What I want you to know is whether you know Jesus Christ today or you don't, I want you to know you're susceptible to this concept. If you don't know Jesus Christ right now and you're going, wait a minute, this is exactly how my life is, I want you to know there's hope and I intend to explain it to you today. But if you know Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with him and you're sitting there going, some of this is still true, I wanna submit to you right now before we go a step further that something other than Jesus Christ is on the throne of your life. If you're anxious, it's because your identity maybe has gotten wrapped back up in the gathering concept, and I'm just inviting you today as we walk through the rest of this message to empty your arms and turn back to Christ. For those of you who don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I'm telling you now, I'm going to invite you to drop the world, to drop the gathering, and to open your arms to a Savior who loves you. But let's look at this concept of identity. This is a beautiful quote from a guy named Tim Keller. He's absolutely one of my favorite thinkers alive right now. He says, all identities not based in Christ can produce anxiety because of the need to prove oneself. The secure identity in Christ does not require shaming, othering, or denouncing. Any of that going on in culture right now? These things, which is always a part of highly performative identities, you see, we get so insecure and we start going around the world, again, gathering, trying to prove to others that we are wealthy enough, that we are loving enough, that we are caring enough. 
And what this is saying is, listen, an identity based in Christ is something different entirely. It's not due, it's not continue to prove, it's something different. So what is that thing and how do we get there? Let's take a look at Romans 6. Romans 6, verse four says this. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I heard a quote this last week. I was, uh, I was on a run, and uh, it's kind of a walk, but we'll call it a run for all intents and purposes. But uh, I was listening to a, uh, a sermon from a guy named Preston Morrison. He's a, a pastor over at Gateway, and it was incredibly encouraging. He's a very gifted speaker and just a great man of God. But this is what he had to say. He said, the hardest part of the Christian life is dying. The best part of the Christian life is being dead. I don't wanna lie to you today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm not gonna stand up here and say, hey, come to the church. Come get Jesus. Your whole life will be absolutely flawless. Your circumstances will be streamlined. You'll never want again. That's not the invitation. The invitation is to experience a love that you were made for. But the way that you get to that love is through a process of leaving a life. Like this verse says, of dying. We put it down so that we can have what this verse says. Can you bring that verse back up real quick from Romans? It doesn't say that we're baptized into life. It says that we're baptized into death. The reason I've gone to extensive links today to say something about what's going on in the world and the life that's being experienced is because whether you know Christ or not, that life's always available. You can walk from the loving arms of Jesus back to the world. And here's the deal. Once you accept Christ, the salvation piece, the hey, him and I are in relationship, that part's done, but we can still go, you know, I think I'd like to start gathering again. I wanna put my security back in things. That's why I'm inviting people who are a part of the church to put it down and say, listen, you gotta put your faith, you gotta put your hope back in Jesus. But if you don't know him today, what I want you to know is the invitation is to come in and to lay down your life. Here's why that's great news. In most cases, we're so stinking exhausted of trying to perform and trying to do that we want to give up lives that are performative, identities that are performative, a nature in humanity that is designed to overreach and to never be satisfied and to fill the infinite places in our heart with an infinite God who extends a love that we were designed to receive. The problem we have in the world is we are trying to get life out of lifeless things. We end up killing all of them in the process. You wanna know why there's all these different places where we're sideways? It's because we're like Lenny. In Of Mice and Men, he comes in and everything he falls in love with, he squeezes so tightly that he kills. We do the same thing in our lives here on earth because we are trying to get infinite love from finite things. We end up loving the things of our world so much that we end up squeezing them to death. We do this with our families, our friends, our money, our food, and our drink. Anybody have the experience where we come in and we're just trying to get so much out of our family that you know they feel exhausted with you? It's not because you're a bad person. You're trying to get eternal life out of a, like an earthly thing. You're trying to get infinite out of finite. You're not going to your friends and your family for the right things and you're trying to squeeze life out of them and you are squeezing the life out of them. It's just not the life that you need. 
You see, the reality is the win of the gospel is that we finally have that deep place in our heart through relationship in Jesus and a continued discipleship walk where we keep laying our life down. And we all of a sudden now, we can come back and all the things in our life, relationships included, are what they're supposed to be. They're earthly things. It's not that friends and family are bad. It's that they were made, we were made for community. It's that they weren't designed to fill that. So now you accept Christ, you walk into this loving relationship and you go to him for those things. Now all of a sudden your family or your friends are what they're supposed to be, support, care. You actually get to pour back in new ways, not because you're performing, not because you're extracting, but because you are set with Jesus Christ. In him you find what you need. Your money, it's a mean, a means of exchange for good. It's not where your hope is. Your food, you wanna know why obesity and heart disease are the biggest problems in our country? It's because people are eating to try and fill their heart and they can't eat enough. Guys, listen, this is my road. I can just, I, like I'm working hard right now, but I'm telling you, I can do just as quickly with food what I used to do with alcohol. Like you don't land in AA at 27 year olds because you moderate well. Like that's just not the road. So I always joke, like I like to keep my weight between a real tight range of about 240 and 175, just kind of right in that narrow little window. Because the reality is this, I can sit there and I can eat and I can eat and I can eat and I can do extremes. What happens with your food when you put Jesus into your life and you go to him to fill your heart? It becomes fuel for a healthy life. That's the reality. Drink, it becomes part of a meal. The reality is so simple. Either you die to self and turn to Christ through the gospel or everything else in your life will because you will look for it for too much. The beauty of Jesus is this. You can squeeze him as hard as you want to and he will just squeeze you right back and ask for more because what you have a desire in your heart for is eternal. It's infinite and the finite things of this world will not help. So here's what I believe is the reality that every human being is longing for. It's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came to earth, God come to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a criminal's death in your place on a cross for the sin of the world so that he could have you back in relationship. Anytime the plan of man, this is what Kevin talked about all last week, anytime the plan of man goes different than the plan of God, we have a very simple word for it. It's ugly and yet beautiful. It's sin. It's been going on since the book of Genesis. My plan goes this way, God's plan goes this way. I believe God's plan is better for my life than my plan. He's proven that over and over again. When we go this way, it's sin. All of us, as Kevin said last week, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and to be back in relationship with him, we need a sacrifice far greater than anything we could ever do with our good behavior, our performing, or our trying to serve. God had to be offered as the perfect sacrifice and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is your invitation to the most beautiful, loving relationship you've ever heard of. It's available to you today simply by just saying this, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of a savior. I recognize Jesus Christ as my Lord and my savior and I wanna walk in relationship with him from now into eternity. It's a recognition of sin and it's an acceptance of a sacrifice for that sin. You see, that's how you get away from the world which is constantly saying do. The gospel is saying it's done. 
The reason you don't have to have a performative identity anymore is because Jesus did the performing. You accept his performance on the cross. So beautiful, so perfect, and simply go, that's where the performing happened. I don't have to perform anymore. My identity is what? Beautiful words, secure in him. I claim him and him alone. That's the beauty of the gospel. Do you see now, going back to our original analogy, how with the wrong perspective, you could look at what the world says is Jesus and go, he is useless. He's useless. With the reality in place today, with the right perspective, do you see how something useless can now be deemed as excellent because you have a new perspective? You recognize that God has made you by him and for him, that only his infinite love would fill the deep places of your heart. You don't need more earthly things, you simply need a new life. You need to be baptized into the death of Jesus Christ and you need to be brought into an understanding of life that says he will fill your heart. You see, it's this beautiful thing that Jesus does. We don't need more dead things, we need more new life. We need a complete reboot. So let me ask you the question. The question that we started with, the question that was asked 2,000 years ago to his disciples. Doesn't, don't, don't get distracted with what people say, with what the world says. Who do you say that he is? For some today, here's a reality. We've carried burdens in our lives for too long on our own. It's time to run to the Father. It's time to fall into his grace. For some of us, it's time to fall into it for the first time, and I'm gonna give you a chance to do that in just a second. For others, what I would say is, if you're in the church, but you feel yourself anxious and performing, it's time to fall into his grace again and again and again, because the Christian walk has us making mistakes. It has our plan deviating from his, and it has us in a place where we have to recognize these differences are called sin, and when we fall into our sin, we turn to God and his grace, which is continuously available to us because of the love of Jesus Christ. So regardless of what camp you're in today, I wanna focus in on it's time to fall into the grace of God. But if you've never done that before, then this is a moment where I'm asking you, who do you say that he is? A liar and a lunatic, which is what the, Lord, which is what the world is saying? Or do you call him Lord and do you wanna call him Lord for the first time today? If that's you, if that's where you are, then I want you to simply where you are sitting alone in front of a computer screen, whether you're hearing this in August of 2020, or whether it's years from now and a friend sent you this simple video, I just want you to pray out loud where you are with me. I just want you to pray the simple words, the sinner's prayer of humble human beings coming to God and saying, I'll never be enough. And I'm so glad that you were, that you offered away the most inclusive plan ever was that Christ died and shed his blood for the world and it's available to all. And yet we know some will choose not to come. I'm asking you today, do you wanna be one of the ones who comes humbly to the feet of Jesus and falls before him? So let's all bow our heads where we are. If that's you today, if you're ready for a Lord and a savior, if you're ready to stop running, if you're tired of carrying your burdens, you've carried them for too long, then just simply repeat these phrases after me. These are your words to Jesus. I'm just simply leading you through them. Lord Jesus, I come to you today. I recognize that my plan is different than yours. I know that you call that sin. Lord, I recognize that my sin needs a savior. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'll continue to stumble and fall, and I need your grace today, so I turn to you, Jesus. I turn from my sin and I repent. 
coming to you and asking, will you give me eternal life that I might walk in relationship with you from this day forward? I recognize that you love me. I claim only your sacrifice for my sins, nothing else. And I pray that you'd continue to lead me and guide me through your spirit, which is a gift now. And that we would continue to walk together. I pray this in your precious name, amen.